0: Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot Des Latham. This is episode 34. With modern examples of dirigibles making something of a limited comeback, I thought it was a good time to take a closer look at one of the lesser-known accidents involving a British airship called the R101 that crashed in 1930 during its maiden voyage to India. After fewer than a dozen test flights, it barely made it across the channel before lurching to the ground in France, killing 48 of the 54 people on board. Those who died included the Air Minister Lord Thompson who had initiated the airship program and almost all the designers from the Royal Airship Works died with him. It is safe to say that this single accident brought UK airship development to a halt and of course the gap was filled by the Germans until the Hindenburg disaster nine years later. The R101 was astonishing, not least for its size. It was the world's largest flying vessel in 1929, clocking in at 237 metres, or 777 feet. This wouldn't be exceeded until 1936, when Germany's Hindenburg stretched a remarkable 245 metres, or 804 feet. Just to give you an idea how vast these things were, a Boeing 747 is a measly 76 metres long, and Airbus is 73 metres. But that's all ICAO's fault, because it's stipulated no plane can be longer than 80 metres, or else... They weren't fit in our modern airports. The R one hundred one was forty meters wide and nearly forty three meters, or one hundred and forty feet tall. Its range six thousand four hundred and thirty kilometers three thousand five hundred nautical miles in Abbey, to speak, and cruised at one hundred and one kilometers per hour fifty five knots. It's registered as Gulf Foxtrot Alpha Alpha Whiskey. It is one of two British rigid airships completed in nineteen twenty nine as the government poured cash into civil airship development eyeing the long-distance routes within the British Empire. They had already supported flying boat development, so this made sense, and the airship was designed and built by an air ministry-appointed team, and the planned routes were Britain to Canada, Australia and India and return. As with other strategic programs, the British funded a private as well as a government design. The private design ship was developed by the Airship Guarantee Company, which was a Vickers subsidiary, and that craft would be known as the R-100. It may have been a private company, but it was also funded by the government. The airship tale began after the 1923 election, which had brought Ramsay MacDonald's Labour government to power. They set off the R program, and the two airships were soon known as the Socialist Airship, or the one produced by the Labour government, and the Capitalist Airship, that would be the Vickers-owned airship guarantee company. It was Socialist versus Capitalist. The Vickers' capitalist airship lead designer was Barnes Wallace, who had a great deal of experience in building rigid airships, but more famous for creating the geodetic framework for the Wellington bomber, followed by his bouncing bomb contraption used in the Second World War. Working alongside him was another famous man, Neville Shute Norway, otherwise known as Neville Shute, the novelist. Of course, you can't just build a massive airship, you have to build support facilities. So expensive mooring masts were constructed in Cardington, Ismailia and Egypt, Karachi, and Montreal. Meteorological reporting systems had to be developed along the route and in the case of the R101, weather was going to exacerbate a poor design. Unhappily for Ismailia, Karachi, and Montreal, each mooring mast cost over 100,000 pounds to construct and they would never be used, although the Cardington mast was being the home port, so to speak. Airships were nothing new. Between 1910 and 1914, five German airships had carried a total of 42,000 passengers over more than 2,000 flights and safely. By the end of the First World War, there were more fixed-wing passenger flights than airship flights, and the most rapid development in technology was taking place in plane development. Airships fell into the background. The Zeppelins were busy during World War I. The L-57, for example, flew continuously between East Africa and Germany, a distance of 4,200 miles, which it managed in 96 hours. England's R-33 and R-34 airships deployed during the Great War were copies of the German Zeppelin. The R-34 flew to America in 108 hours in 1919, then took 75 hours on its return journey. These were quite quick compared to with maritime travel, of course. The list of airships around the time is long. The German Budenzier and the Los Angeles, the Italian Norge, which flew with Arctic explorer Roald Amundsen over the North Pole, and Alaska, just a few examples. But there were also a number of accidents. Too many when you really consider the form of transport. Airships were actually dangerous because of the use of hydrogen gas. The French Deshmout was hit by lightning in 1923, killing all on board when it exploded The United States built a Shenandoah, which used helium, and then broke up in a storm in 1925. Then the British R-28 broke in two in August 1921 during trial flights, and that was blamed on a design fault, leading to a safety board being set up in the UK called the Airship Stressing Panel. It appeared that many designers did not really understand the effect of wind and pressure changes on these craft, and the stressing panel was going to put that right, at least if everyone followed the rules. I mention this because, as you're going to hear, they didn't in the case of the R-101. The relationship between aircraft manufacturers and the state safety regulator is supposed to be one of distant aloofness, not close association. The first report of the Airworthiness and Airships Panel in October 1924 stipulated how many times stronger an airship should be than the reasonable breaking points, rather than having these things fly on the edge of the safety envelope. But this panel did not have enough data to create proper stats about the effect of wind gusts, how metal fatigue was linked to resonance, and how temperatures could affect structures. The panel threw up its hands and allowed the designers leeway because the maths and physics at the time was insufficient to draw up intrinsic rules. Just to add a layer of risk, the Air Ministry designers had deviated almost completely from the conventional methods, the tried and trusted methods of the day, when they constructed the R-101. The novelties in design did not only include the hull's anatomy, but also the gas bag wiring, relief valves, the steering mechanism, and even the use of new engine oil. As the crash report was to note quite dryly, originality and courage in design are not to be deprecated, but there is an obvious danger in giving too many hostages to fortune at one time. During construction, the engineers appeared to follow the safety testing rules. However, as the date for the all-important maiden flight to India approached in 1930, there was a tendency to rely on limited experiment instead of comprehensive flight testing. The accident report noted that in the run-up to the disaster, the 101 started for India before she could be regarded as having emerged successfully from all exhaustive tests proper to an experimental stage. Its girder design was a major shift away from the established rules used by the Zeppelins. We'll get back to this in a minute. The gas bag, however, was not. The R101 had 17 of these, which lifted 167 tons. They were made of cotton fabric lined with gold beater skin, then glued together. Gold beater skin was an interesting and pretty old technology. Originally, the processed outer membrane of the intestines of an animal, usually cattle, were used and valued for the strength against tearing. Gold beater skin is a term that comes from the process of making gold leaf by beating the gold in a batch process and flattening it. Obviously, the R101 did not use gold leaf, but it deployed the same process. Gold beater skin forms a high strength-to-weight ratio and is generally reliable and crucial for the airships of the 1920s and 30s. The R101 used the skin from oxen intestines. Lengths of oxen intestine were washed in warm water with added glycerine and the fat scraped off with a blunt knife. In gas bag manufacturing, the first process was to assemble the skins to form large continuous sheets ready for gluing onto a cotton fabric. A double layer of wet skins were laid out on a smoothly stretched canvas and as they dried out, they stuck together. Then they were peeled from the canvas sheet as one continuous layer representing thin transparent parchment. This gold beater skin would be glued to the inner side of the cotton fabric, which in turn would be glued together with an inch overlap. For waterproofing, the bag was painted in an oil varnish on the inner side, while the outer side would be varnished with oil mixed with beeswax and aluminium powder. Then it was stress tested for tearing, which was a serious issue, because when this happened, it could run the entire length of a bag, just like a sail under pressure. Interestingly, They discovered that if a bag tore at the bottom, it would often stay mostly inflated because the gas inside was pushed against the top and remained trapped in the bag. However, a tear at the top was catastrophic. The R101 gas bags were held in place with a complex system of wires. If you can imagine two parachutes back-to-back with the strings held in place at opposite ends, that's something like this system looked. Each drum-shaped gas bag was squeezed between these two wires to reduce movement. In addition to the gas wiring, the engineers decided to change the girder design, which was going to lead to chafing of the bags. The R101 also had newly designed gas relief valves. When it was at ground level, the bags would only be partially inflated. As the airship rose, the pressure dropped and the bags would swell, increasing the stress against those internal wires and the girders. The relief valves were there to stop the bags from tearing if the airship rose too quickly. Its maximum climbing rate was set at 4,000 feet a minute, quite fast, even by modern standards. The valves in the R101 were extremely sensitive and inserted halfway up each bag. These were not fully tested before the maiden flight to India, and it's thought that some failed to work properly. The control car was built amidships, where two crew would operate the rudder and the elevator. The official title of the operator was Elevator Coastway. Next to him was an altimeter and an enclometer, or rate of climb and descent, and the Coastway moved the elevator with a spoked wheel like an old-fashioned ship's wheel, and that was connected to the elevator with a cable and drum system. A servo gear powered by oil pressure helped rotate the drums. The entire airship was powered by five 12-stroke diesel engines because petrol engines had a propensity to burst into flame. A terrible design fault had crept into the system, however, because the diesel engines were so big they needed smaller petrol engines to start them. And petrol engines needed fuel, and it was this fuel that caused the deadly fire. Another design error was that the engines could not be run at full power for long periods because the torque they produced would shake them loose of their mountings. The R101 was also supplied with auxiliary power units, little windmills to power electrical components. It had five fuel tanks, holding 29 tons of diesel, fitted with jettison valves in case of urgency to decrease weight. In addition, there were also eight tons of water ballast, and this could be released simultaneously in an emergency. So, airship testing began after its two-year build program it first flew in 1929. However, the first four flights lacked proper logs. Then bad weather slowed the testing process. Eventually, on November 1st, 1929, it headed off on a a seven-and-a-half-hour endurance test flight, then conducted a much longer overnight test flight a day later, but two of its engines failed. Back to Cardington it went. Then it set off on another two flights of less than three hours each. There was a flight planned for November 16th with a full load of passengers, but bad weather put paid to that. A gale which sprung up on the 11th of November while the R101 was tethered to its mast at Cardington led to its surviving a battering of 80 miles per hour gusts, and the Air Ministry was satisfied that they had created a tough airship. This reinforced a false perception. You see, the gale had caused a problem. It had moved the airbags around, and a couple had been torn when they rubbed against girders and bolts. They hadn't ripped completely because they were not yet under pressure. After this, a 30-hour endurance flight was conducted on the 17th of November. The R101 travelled a 1,000 miles, taking 30 hours and 41 minutes, its route over much of Scotland and Ireland flying at a 1,000 feet. This was to be its longest flight ever. The R101 was pushed back into its hangar after the November 1929 tests and left there until June the 23rd of 1930. That was seven months, and in that time, the designers had inserted an additional middle section or bay that provided space for another gas bag to increase lift. They'd lengthened the airship, creating more engineering stresses. It was tested again, but now the previous tests were almost irrelevant because of the increased forces produced by lengthening the airship. They also had to alter the wiring system, let alone the girder construction. It was during this phase that the R101 developed a massive 140-foot tear in its outer fabric, which was repaired, then another tear developed the next day. Engineers patched both of these using a technique similar to fixing a bicycle tyre. Just to be safe, they added strengthening bands over the patches. This was 1930, after all, but you can start to imagine what was going to go wrong. A couple more tests were flown in June, with a crew grappling with ballast issues, which needed skills of a ballerina to get right. On a test run on June 27, 1930, the airship suddenly dived, catching the crew by surprise. They blamed this on a faulty relief valve, or perhaps it was the chafing of the gas bags. They weren't sure. Tons of ballast were dropped. The ship continued flying. But these were signs that all was not well on the R101. The gas bags were inspected and a report compiled about the areas that had the most holes. Padding was added to the metal girders and the wires adjacent. On July 3rd, a Mr. McWade, who was inspector in charge of safety at Cardington, sent a pointed letter to the Air Ministry about his fears that the airbag design was not up to scratch and that the permit to fly should be withdrawn, what we know as the Certificate of Airworthiness. Air Ministry's wing commander, Mr. Colmore, disagreed. Just use more wrapping was his solution. The pressure on him was rising. He was suffering from that aviator's curse, get their Artis, or in this case, get a move on, itis. The airship permit to fly was required before its next trial on October 1st, 1930. Air Ministry officials phoned Mr. McWade and demanded that he provide an oral permit to fly, and the technocrats followed up this order of the terse note, just in case the expert didn't understand, if you don't sign it, we'll find someone who will kind of threat. A general epidemic of Get Their right now developed. Colmore was told to move it up because Air Ministry boss Lord Thompson had to fly to India on board the R-101 and then all the way back before an upcoming imperial conference in London on October 20th. Get Their right spread like an epidemic thereafter. It was decided to cut short the last test flight to less than 24 hours, which took place on October 1st, which if you've been listening, you'd know is actually before they physically had the certificate of airworthiness on board. And this would be the 11th time the airship had been tested at all over the space of 12 months. The test without certificate was in almost perfect weather conditions. By now, the airship had also been seen by millions of Britons, and at least a million had actually showed up in the past year at Cardington just to view this amazing craft. The government was under pressure to fly this thing. Air Marshal Hugh Dowding, to his credit, was one of the aviators who warned about all of this, saying there'd be no full-power tests and warning of the dangers, but Colmore said final testing could be conducted during the maiden flight. The Certificate of Airworthiness was rushed out on October 2nd. And so the R101 slipped to a mooring tower at 1800 hours 36 UTC on October the 4th in the dark. There was no rain, but the wind was rising. The barometer had been dropping all day. Meteorologist Mr Giblet, watching the barometer with some misgiving as he reclined on board, was to die on the airship within a few hours. It carried 25 tons of diesel and 9.5 tons of ballast water. There were 54 people on board and 12 passengers. Six of these were officials from the Cardington Airship Works. The R101 had a whopping 42-member crew. The mega-machine pulled away from the mooring tower in trim, nose and the tail in line. After circling Bedford, it headed to London, where rain began to fall steadily. She rose to 1,500 feet and about three tons of gas was spilling from her relief valves. By twenty hundred hours 21, the ship was pitching and rolling more than usual, The wireless messenger sent a note saying, Over London, all well, moderate rain, base of clouds, 1500 feet, wind 240 degrees, 25 miles per hour, course set for Paris, Tours, Toulouse, and Narbonne. Things got worse and quickly. At 2100 hours 35, the ship was crossing the coast at Hastings. The wind from the southwest was stronger, but she was cruising at just over 50 knots, all engines working well, but she was running late. It took two hours to cross the channel. At 1100 hours 36, the message read, Crossing French coast at Pointe de Saint-Quentin, wind 245 true, 35 miles power. That was 60 miles from Hastings, even slower because two engines had broken down. As they crossed the coast into France, both these engines spluttered back into life once more, according to engineers Mr. Bell and Mr. Binks, who were two of the six survivors. At 11pm, the watch on board was changed. Just after midnight, a radio message was sent indicating an excellent supper had been taken, followed by cigars. Most people on board then went to bed. The crew having settled down to watchkeeping routine, and that was the last message received from the doomed airship. Nothing untoward was reported until 2am when the watch was changed again. As the R101 flew over Béveau at about 2 Passing east of the town, it was watched by a handful of residents who were awoken by the loud diesel engines. They say the vessel appeared to be laboring in the heavy wind. Then the ship lurched into a 30-second steep dive, throwing the engineers off their feet, the smoking-room furniture sliding towards the bulkhead. The R101 was extremely close to the ground by now, a couple of hundred feet. The coastline pulled the elevator wheel and the airship climbed, returning to an even keel for a few seconds. That didn't last as it suddenly dived towards the ground once more and this time there was no escape. Reduce speed, shouted the coastline, then stop engines, but it was too late. The electrician on board screamed, we're down lads. Moments later the bow crunched into the earth and survivors say the ship dragged along scraping the ground for 60 feet and then shuddered to a halt. Watching in shock was a rabbit catcher called Rabul, who was within 300 metres from where the R-101 crashed. He heard three explosions, and the ship lit up like a lantern starting at the bow. Only Mr Church, who was in the bow, escaped. The rest, who were in the forward compartments, died. The fire was fed by the starting engines. These were the petrol engines. It was the petrol mixed with the hydrogen and oxygen that formed a kind of perfect explosive, and with and within a second or two, the entire airship was ablaze. The first flashes died down to a steady blaze, which continued for the next 24 hours. 48 people died, 6 survived. A committee of investigation was set up by the British Air Ministry. They cleared the crew of blame, and the weather was also deemed not extreme enough because the airship had not broken up. It was in one piece when it came down. The cause was a substantial loss of gas from the bags, which the committee had found had been taking place constantly as the R-101 travelled from England to France. There was no catastrophic moment. The committee ruled that the rush to complete the maiden voyage had been the R-101's death knell. It is impossible to avoid the conclusion that the R-101 would not have started for India on the evening of October 4th. If it had not been that reasons of public policy were considered as making it highly desirable for her to do so, if she could. The committee also had this to say. She was undertaking a novel task and weather conditions worse than any to which she had ever been exposed in flight. Lord Thompson had perished in the crash. It was his insistence that led to the cutting of corners, so this is a kind of perverse irony. Air travel, said the committee, was still in its experimental stage. It was for others to determine whether the experiment should be further pursued. Others appeared to decide it wasn't, and airship travel remained in its experimental stage almost a century after this accident. The R-100 Vickers linked airship Aka the Capitalist. The number two was quietly put away in storage, then broken up for scrap a couple of years later. Simply put, The cause was the chafing of the airbags, which moved around more than the designers had realised, and this was not satisfactorily tested because the Air Ministry was in too much of a rush to get to India. The bags had no pressure monitors, and they lost their gas constantly during the bumpy ride across the Channel, and once over France, the R101 could fly no more. Dirigibles are making something of a comeback, and Cardington is once again the centre of this airship universe. Hybrid air vehicles prototype Airlander 10 airship is being test flown over the grassy fields of Cardington once more. The Airlander 10 was originally designed as a military surveillance craft as well as a low emission alternative regional air travel machine. It's going to fly 100 passengers per leg on a handful of short haul routes Liverpool to Belfast, Oslo to Stockholm, Seattle to Vancouver, amongst others. All of this apparently by 2025. Hybrid Air is using a novel design. They looked at both rigid and non-rigid airships, those such as the famous Goodyear blimps, and came down solidly on the non-rigid side with a twist. Hybrid Air has deployed a pillow-shaped design, not a cigar, and its airlander is heavier than air. It relies on both aerostatic lift from helium and aerodynamic lift to fly, making it a hybrid airship. And a Scandinavian company is in talks about using the Airlander to tour the North Pole. It's now helium, not hydrogen. The materials are not ox intestines, but composites. The engines electric, not petrol. And there's no doubt that the future of these fantastic airships is very much secured for military and commercial aviation. Next episode, I will cover the Aero Mexico Flight Four Ninety Eight Douglas DC Nine collision with a light plane, a Piper Cherokee, in August nineteen eighty six. All 64 on board the DC-9 died, along with three on board the Cherokee, and 15 others on the ground in the Los Angeles suburb of Cerritos. Rochelle is a listener who suggested this one because her family lived in Cerritos, and by a miracle they survived the accident. She has provided some terrifying personal details, and it's one of the more important accidents we'll discuss because it prompted the FAA to order that all jets in American airspace must be equipped with a traffic collision avoidance system and for all light aircraft operating in dense airspaces to be equipped with mode C transponders which report altitude. As I fly in dense airspace, I know how critical this is in terms of saving lives. Thanks for the idea, Rochelle. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the sites desmilatham.com or desmondlatham.blog.com or direct message me at Des Latham. Until next, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye.